podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Oh, it's a goal. Who got the assist? Who got the assist? Hello and welcome to the final watch along of Sunderland Till I Die. There have been thrills, trials and tribulations, the latter mostly for media and the edits late at night. Uh, but it feels a bit of a seminal moment as that lockdown sadly continues and we stay alert, to, at least in the UK anyway. As I say every week, if you tune in for the first time in a while, uh, this is an FPL free zone. Uh, so if you're new here, please stop listening to this and go back to episode one of the series, starting off at 18 minutes, 30 seconds in to get you up to speed and get through this whole kind of series. But for those who are with us, let's get into it. I'm joined today by Nick and Stag, of course. Nick, you all right? Hey mate, yeah, I'm good, thank you. Uh, it's another week in lockdown. It feels all the same, even if the uh, the government are starting to relax the the measures a little bit. It all feels very samey for myself, at least. Um, staying at home, I, I can't see myself actually going back to the office for at least another few months, so or until even a vaccine comes out. But you know, um, enjoying life at least in lockdown with my my kid and my family. It's, it's not too bad, but yeah, everything's okay. Thanks. Who we are, we are Who Got The Assist. You can find us on Twitter at WGTA underscore FPL for Tom, at WGTA underscore Nick for myself, at FPL Stag for Anthony. And we're also on Instagram, so make sure to give us a follow there, WGTA.FPL. So, Anthony, what's the pod this week? Evening, lads. Staying alert here in Brussels too at the moment. Uh, this week, so we're going to be looking at the whole entire project restart in the Premier League in June, how that's coming along, all the different roadblocks that seem to be almost regenerating and generating themselves constantly. With the Bundesliga as well nearing its approach, there's been big news there in terms of the Dinamo Dresden team being gone into full quarantine, which has obviously put a little bit of a problem there for them and whether it's even going to go ahead in the next week or two and then we've also got more Kyle Walker news before we eventually move on to our Sunder Until I Die watch along for the final episode of this series Cool, yeah um, yeah. more Kyle Walker news I think we've, we've, off camera. we've got to include it every week he is to these podcasts what Nicola Gaetan is to Manchester United transfer windows, is just an ever present isn't he uh, but let's go to the news and uh, you know we've been staying alert this week to news in terms of the restart because it does seem like it's edging ever closer um, the Premier League it's still up in the air we'll talk about it in a second but on from the which is, at the time of recording, fairly certain that the Bundesliga, uh, that's the German league for those people who don't speak German, um, is back this weekend. Um, and uh, yeah, as Stag just mentioned, uh, Dynamo Dresden, uh, who I think are in the, the championship equivalent of the Bundesliga. Bundesliga Zwei. Bundesliga Zwei, yeah, or, or two, for those people who aren't German speakers. Um, they're about to go into, they've gone into quarantine, haven't they? Um, so, is it a farce? well um so the bundesliga ceo has um said that it's definitely still going ahead regardless of um the dynamo dresden news christian seifert said we're not changing our plans everything is continuing on but with the with dynamo dresden they're they're not going to be able to play any games at least until the 26th 27th of may so there's still going to be some fixtures cancelled and um, a few cynical minds out there as well seems uh, are saying that it's uh, it's all a ploy considering Dynamo Dresden are um, bottom of the table looking like they're going to be relegated and uh, probably looking to see if they can get that league cancelled but that's obviously uh, a very cynical um, mindset towards what's, what's going on in the Bundesliga but at, at the moment they're still going ahead seems like it's going to be starting next weekend which is um, great for us to I've missed the football and um, like the fantasy. We're also playing a little bit of fantasy Bundesliga as well. So if you guys on Twitter having some uh, chats about that, and uh, that's, that looks like it might be a bit of a bit of fun on the side. But yeah, uh, 
you know, Germany have uh, managed this uh, uh, epidemic a lot better than some other European countries, including ourselves. So if, if they're ready to play football, then they're ready. But um, still uh, a little bit of wait and see, I guess, could be cancelled last minute, possibly. It goes back to something we discussed a few weeks ago, where the whole entire house of cards completely collapse once one player tests positive you know whole teams have to go into lockdown that's fixtures cancelled for at least two weeks if you're playing midweek matches or if it's like what La Liga plan to do you could quite easily miss three or four fixtures for your team if the whole team has to go into quarantine like the fact of the matter is is if the whole squad are together and somebody tests positive in the days following that all of them are going into quarantine and if they've played a game the opposition are going into quarantine and it's just so so difficult to try and keep this whole entire thing balancing on a knife edge over the course of so many weeks and there's all the other impossible situations that go with it of course it will be nice to have a fantasy football thing going again with the fbl that as nick mentioned quite a few people are taking a bit of an interest in and you're starting to see the introduction to the bundesliga articles appearing around twitter and in the athletic and places like that which is kind of funny and i do for what i for one do indeed look forward to getting to know schalke's left back and the like but yeah, exactly. Uh, cheering on Nkunku and Co is going to be uh, great fun. Um, don't know if we'll do anything for FBL. We'll have a think about it. But uh, in the meantime, um, yeah, it'll be good to see top-level football back. It's not not knocking the South Korean League or the uh, Belarusian Premier League. Um, but yeah, it'll be... I think that's the first kind of uh, affected Western big big four, big six leagues come back, isn't it? So, yeah, really interesting. And I guess on the other side of it, though, remember, they've shown their hand and it looks like with, with the Premier League, um, Project Restart that we spoke about last week has been hitting a whole load of barriers, as Anthony mentioned uh, a little while ago. Those lower lower tier clubs have dug into opposition to the neutral venues idea, and it looks like some news has just come out tonight on that one too. Um, and, yeah, there's also a few players... Uh, already in, uh, kind of putting the biosphere in danger. So Brighton, um, an unnamed player, has gone into quarantine. Youch And uh, Dean Smith as well said that three players of his team either are suffering from something themselves or have underlying health conditions at home with their families that they may, may not play. So quite a hairy situation in general, isn't it? Definitely, I think. Um, it, again, it's just the cynic, the cynic um, comes to play when you look at some of the teams that seem to be most... Um, um, actively remonstrating online. We've seen, seen tweets from the likes of Tyrone Mings tonight, you know, campaigning and also highlighting that, you know, it's, it's not about the positions of the league, but it's, you know, everyone's concerned about health and health is the priority. And of course, health is the priority. But you've also seen other um, people like Todd Cantwell also um, tweet about Project Restart. And as you mentioned, the Brighton, another team that potentially are in a lot of danger in terms of relegation um, with their players in quarantine. And uh, yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, <laughs> Safety is paramount, and we've also noticed, you know, like they're going to be there's going to be huge bills for these clubs if the if the matches aren't played, and there's potentially even huge bills anyway in regards to uh, missed broadcaster rights for the games that have already been missed this season. So um, there's a lot of money um, in getting the league restarted, and a lot of people are very keen to get started. But then it's, it's that old age question against. Um, economy um, versus health and uh, yeah at the moment 1st of June has uh, been mooted as, as the threshold in terms of uh, deadline um, from which uh, games can be played again and that's for now. 
So just to put a little bit of meat on the bones of what Nick was speaking about with regards to the broadcasters bill, that even if games do go ahead, it's it looks like that the clubs could still have to, I guess, not get three hundred million pounds or three hundred and fifty million pounds worth of money from the broadcasters for this season. And that basically boils down to the fact that they can't fulfill some of the obligations in the broadcast contracts, most notably the fact that when the games are likely to start and I guess finish is you know, starting in mid June and then sometime towards the end of the summer that they would finish so they missed the allotted time slot that they had and then the fact that there are no fans there I guess is it I'm not sure what particular contractual obligation there was regarding fans there or the atmosphere but they're certainly not going to be able to meet that whenever it is which is of course naturally leading some clubs to wonder like okay if we're financially screwed um anyway even if we do play damned if we do damned if we don't isn't the easiest option and the healthiest option to do is just not to play whatsoever so yeah, like when you hope to spread all these games over seven weekends and two midweeks with stagger kickoffs times, it's going to be a logistical nightmare. It's going to be a nightmare from a health point of view, from a PR perspective. It's going to be extremely difficult. And if somebody, God forbid, is seriously injured or goes onto a ventilator, and that doesn't just include players, that includes backroom staff as well. And we know some of those are as old as in their seventies. Things are going to get a lot more difficult. No, they, they certainly are. Um, I think that it's, uh, it's it's a question of momentum now, isn't it? It's a question of how how things develop over the next few days. Um, you've got Greg Clark, who's the FA chairman, uh, who said today that uh, the governing body will not sanction no relegation or voiding the season. Um, so the null and voiders um, are going to have to go and do something else. And uh, yeah, I mean, you've got you've had what five shareholders meetings since players suspended in March to try to figure out what's going on, what they're going to do about everything, and plans are still fairly incomplete. But it does look like once they've got everybody to agree to something and um, they'll, they'll be able to push through it. It's just about trying to get that agreement. As you spoke about last week, as Nick just mentioned, the six clubs at the bottom are all clubs who have said, no, I'm not going to play at a neutral venue. So it is looking like we are going to have to, they are going to have to do the home and away. And that does unleash a plethora of issues, but equally it may be the only way that they can get things sorted out. Like the return to training protocols are probably what's going to be sorted out first. And then kind of when they get to games, it'll be like that kind of, they'll do that first stage of training. Then the second stage is going to be how we kind of bridge the gap between training to making games happen. And, it may well be we have a Bund- uh, uh, sorry a La Liga sort of approach where games get smashed out really really quickly just to get the season finished. Oh, it's it's, it's mindful, isn't it? And yeah, it's always legal and financial implications as well. But it, for whatever reason, it looks like we are going towards getting the season finished. It's just kind of a case of when rather than if now. You kind of feel it's almost like reluctantly hanging someone for a crime you're not sure they've committed, though. You know, they're just forcing themselves to finish this season. And I think there's everybody at this point seems to have doubts about it. I think when we first started doing these uh, podcasts in at home, it kind of felt like, sure, they can restart it. Like, of course they can at some point. And we, I think I definitely was blithely kind of expecting, like, of course, it'll be easy to do it eventually. But just the more you watch, the more difficulties become apparent. And it's all the different facets of the arguments that lower clubs and upper clubs and health concerns and who people live with and who they don't live with and for how long that they would have to live these really weird lives and whether they'd have to live those weird lives next season too and whether even next season would be able to go ahead if they can't do this season. It continues. Yeah, exactly. I feel like we're going around in circles. And speaking of which, the final man this week to talk about, Carl Walker. Um, <laughs> run circles again he's back 
Uh, but should we be getting a tiny violin out for him? Uh, he's gone around the circles because he's circled back to Sheffield, circled back to the northeast to see his family. And now he's complaining that he's been hounded. Uh, Malachi Clerkin in the Irish Times and Dan Taylor in the Athletic think that we probably shouldn't be getting on tiny violins and actually just thinking, you know what, Carl, you're a bit of an idiot. Uh, what do you guys think? Like I would have read that Malachi Clerkin piece in the Times and I definitely would agree with his perspective on things that Kyle Walker came out with this it wasn't an apology. It was just a complete and utter, almost it wasn't an attack on the media in the Trump sense of the word. But at the same time, what you had from Walker was completely failing to understand why what he did was an issue and why the rules don't apply differently to him because he's a footballer or because he was feeling sad or because whatever. there's so many people in probably much worse situations than him. Everyone is missing out on things. People aren't having funerals. People have lost their jobs and don't have a stellar income. People are missing birthdays. That was one of the things that was thrown into his list. Grow up, Kyle. Uh, Yeah, exactly. I I think we're all agreed here. um, Yeah, he he came out and attacked the media for this sort of breach of privacy. And, you know, his sister hugged him. What was he to do that his sister hugged him? And he got some hot meals from his parents and uh, didn't even mention the fact that he'd also gone for a bike ride with a friend that was left out of his note, probably because there was no no excuse to that particular one. And, you know, this whole breach of privacy and all this stuff. But, you know, he is in in the public eye. And it wasn't so much about what he did on this particular incident but the previous incident with the sex worker that everyone <laughs> everyone knows about and you know he's, he's not going to be living down any anytime soon and uh, yeah I, I think at this point it probably would have been best if he just shut up and just stayed indoors and just you know rather than trying to attack the media it, it came up completely wrong absolutely a bit amusing but there we go all right uh, let's take a break there and we'll get into season two episode six the final episode of something slide i and that we're going to be watching along there is one more to come after this though um, and it's called football is life who got the assist who got the assist so we're back and it's uh, the end of this uh, series two of Sunday Side Eye, Football is Life. It's 52 minutes to round off the season as we fade to, fade to black at the end of the series. Uh, we're not going to talk too much about grand themes on this one. It's more about the episode itself. In terms of grand themes next week, shock reveal, we've got Alex McCain, uh, the host of the Roker Report, joining us next week to talk about the season as a whole, kind of how they saw it as fans and also kind of to provide a little bit of an epilogue. Where are they now, all these main characters? What are the perspectives on these guys? How, how have they evolved since the, the show was filmed? And what's happened since the Sunderland, our beloved Sunderland, uh, who we leave at the very end of this episode? But, you know, this episode kicks off in Easter. Uh, there's chat about uh, the buzz in the city right off the bat. And it's reminiscent of the very opening of Sunderland Until I Die, the very first episode. You see the priests, they walk to the top of the hill, some prayers and stuff. And uh, they, they say prayers for the people, the city, and, of course, the football club. Because of the hope and belief of our supporters, we dare to dream. The opening credits uh, then roll for the fun time in this series. On the river and we open with the game. It's the 13th of April, Sunderland versus Coventry, and it's 3-3. Stuart and Charlie in the, in the executive lounge. They're ripped apart. They're saying huge gaps exist between the players. But the goals that come in the second half. Long and short of it, it's 5-4. A 5-4 defeat at home, no less. Uh, their first home defeat of the season. Charlie reaches for some grandiose metaphors to describe the defending. And Jack Ross agrees. The brutal truth about today is you can't defend in that manner against a good team and expect to win games. How we defended is, is miles away from what it needs to be at. 
And uh, yeah, it looks like kind of Baldwin and Flanagan, the two centre-backs, are being really singled out for criticism particularly. And we hear from Tom Flanagan first, one of the centre-halves. He said he's been verbally abused and Tesco, his wife, newborn baby. They're looking at you like you're not even trying. And you're thinking, well, actually, like, I am trying. So it's difficult. And I think this is quite quite worrying isn't it because we saw like last season um you know with the chris coleman incident for example that things do turn nasty and it has happened a few times where they've been kind of paying lip service to it where if the fans turn things can turn a little bit kind of pressurized but i mean listen to tom flanagan and him saying his wife and newborn baby were uh, set upon to some extent um you've got to ask where is the line like what do you guys think about seeing that i was upset with it in the way that flanagan Painted the image anyway, which was certainly that he was accosted and it was very unfair and quite aggressive. It was kind of the picture he painted of this you know, approach in Tesco, let's say. So it goes two ways, and that I don't like this idea that players should never be spoken to in public by people. I think it's great that people should be are able to see players on the streets and ask them for selfies or even just speak to them about the football briefly. It might drive the player mad, but I think that's part of the job is being recognised and having to talk to fans and just you know. Look, even at League One, you get a decent pay for, in most cases. And I think it's, that's just part of what you're paid for is the really annoying side of being recognized on the streets. But the line is, of course, at verbal abuse and, like you, and even being overly critical to somebody's face. Like you, you, you can't go up to Flanagan and say these sort of things. Like, Do you really not think that Flanagan himself knows that he had a nightmare the week before? He's conceded five goals at home. Like The whole stadium is already being abusing him and we'll talk about that later and whether that's okay. His teammates know it. The management have definitely abused him and he himself is going to give out to himself too. You know, Someone doesn't need to come up to you in Tesco to make you finally know that you've had a bad game. Yeah, exactly. It, it, that's not right. To, to be like abusing players to their faces, especially when they're just trying to go about their business, to go about their living, you know, with young families, it's just ultimately unacceptable. And and to a certain extent, you, you can take that off real life as well and talk about some of the online abuse that some of the players get as well. It, it, it borders on like offensive it's horrendous you know so um, I think I remember seeing on the, the Leeds um, documentary there was Luke Island who's talking about how he's searching for his name on on Twitter or his wife had searched for his name you know you'd just be tweets upon tweets just you know horrendously berating him and abusing him with you know all sorts and death threats and things like that and thrown in as well and you know that is yeah, that is absolutely horrendous and unacceptable I strongly condemn that that um, behavior obviously because that's, that's just unacceptable isn't it Okay, so Tom, if you see Mustafi down in Tesco, or Nick, if you see, I don't know, Jose Mourinho, perhaps, down in Tesco, or Eric Dyer, what is it that you're going to say? Like, do you, What do you think is acceptable to say? Do you think it's not even okay to ask them for a picture or to take a photo of them for Twitter or something? What, like, what's okay? What's not okay? And if you want to give a piece of your mind, what's okay? I think it's just being respectful to another human being at the end of the day. Like, I think that's literally all it is. And it's, it's almost like it's a case of not what you say, but the way you say it. I know that sounds a bit flappy, but at the same time, it's completely true because you don't want to be in the situation like as a human being that someone else is coming up, up to you and having a go at you for something you did in the office. Like if Nick's on count to you and was just like, oh, you, you, that last email is absolutely fucking dreadful, mate. God, what have you done? Like, you missed a full stop there. Like, you'd be like, 
what really like come on seriously like you wouldn't expect that behavior and you wouldn't you wouldn't ever interact with somebody like that so why is it acceptable to speak to somebody like that even if they are like a little bit of a celebrity or they do play football i just don't really think that that's fair um i think what is fair is to criticize someone professionally um but you have to be very careful about separating the person from the professional and that can be really really hard to do especially if the receiver of the criticism can ha, runs the risk of taking that personally like sometimes you have to be very very clear about how you're doing it but in terms of if i saw a footballer like mustafi in real life like me personally i would just leave them be i wouldn't if i wouldn't go up to them or anything like that because that's not who i am yeah. i mean the, the first i go is ask them for a for a photo or something but like you know i just take the view that i can't really criticize them because i've got apart from i can criticize them as footballers like as statistical entities that i analyze but as people and like being abused to somebody I, that's just not in my makeup it's not my character so you know it, it, there's definitely a line to be drawn for me and i think that probably is it that it's just being respectful if i have criticism or you know just trying to treat them as professional entities rather than people exactly and um you know we've obviously as, as podcasters we've we've received abuse online before as well you know not to the extent that footballers have received we've received marginal abuse and and we don't like it when we receive it so if, if and no one obviously likes being abused or being attacked so if you don't like it um you know being received yourself then why why would you dish it out you know so i think um it's it's obviously um yeah, it's obviously unacceptable, and you know, especially the incident that's described in in the in the series where he's mm. kind of accosted in in Tesco um, after losing the game. Obviously, he, was, he put his best, you know, he's put his effort. In. The, I think the difference is there, though, Nick, yeah, is yeah. that like none of us are match-going fans, none of us are tribal fans, and the three of us, I think, are fairly individualistic characters. Um, whereas those who are regular match-goers and are people who, I, I guess. Are, are used to their identity being subsumed by a wider whole um, and you know, identify as being part of a group. You know, I'm a fan, whereas I don't think any of us would probably say we're tribal fans in that way. There's no like kind of emotion which overrules our rational thought. Um, like, can we understand the view of somebody who gets caught up in emotion, goes to games the whole time? Like, do you think that they do have a right to turn around and say what they want because they pay their money to go and see their hard-earned cash to go and see somebody like uh, Tom Flanagan play and him, him performing badly? So I guess whilst I'm not a tribal fan, as we put it, or even a constant match goer, I think I would be that when it comes to maybe Republic of Ireland football games, and then I try to get to every single one of them. And I, you know, at that point, I'm definitely only supporting Ireland, and I don't have a a vague love for Oman or Georgia or whoever Ireland or Denmark because we we're always playing those three teams. It seems, but so, but I can understand the tribalism in that sense and that wanting that sense of belonging, and I love the kind of escape of. Uh, the escapism of going there, you know, you forget about the individualisticness of myself for a while and just be of the group. And that is lovely. But what I don't understand is how some people allow or think that it's okay for that to manifest itself as just being a bad person and just hurling abuse at a player, a manager, a referee. Like it's, it's fine to be exasperated. It's fine to say, Oh, F this, you know, like just to yourself. It's another thing to get up from your chair, point at somebody and scream, you're a whatever the hell. Yeah. That's not okay for me. 
Yeah, exactly. I think it's a very fine line. I mean, we've all been in situations where we've been watching TV on the television and you might have shouted or held some abuse, but we don't, the player's not necessarily listening. Or, well, they're obviously not listening if they're watching the television, but if you're in the crowd as well, you might have shouted stuff and you're almost kind of firing up the player, trying to get them to, you know, perform better, you know, put your effort in. If you see, if you're at an Arsenal game, for instance, you see all languidly wandering around, not tracking back and uh, helping the team defend, then of course you're going to say, get the F back there and help the team and, and stuff like that and I think that's you know there are limits to it obviously you know some some circumstances the crowd trying to fire up the team and you know the home advantage getting everyone involved but you know just shouting pure abuse that doesn't hold any benefit other than to kind of make the player you know upset is obviously unacceptable like you see every club has this to an extent I'm, I'm fully aware but there are some clubs your Millwalls your West Hams and I think your Sunderlands as well where the fans seem to revel in the idea that they're going to be tough on their players because that's how much they care about the game and it's you know they'll they'll shroud misbehavior and completely forgetting about what's okay and what's not okay in passion and i'm doing a quotation marks here <laughs> and, and and i think that there's a need to get a grip and be accountable for what you're doing at some stage and not just to think, you know, oh, we just love the game. And so it's carte blanche, okay, to say absolutely anything and trying to write it off as if, you know, I don't know, Luke 09 knew what he was getting into when he signed for Sunderland. No, like Luke 09 doesn't need to be denigrated every game for missing his touch or whatever. Oh, who'd denigrate Luke 09 though? I'd be there to beat him up if he did that. (laughs) What a lovely man. (laughs) But yeah, no, there are shades of, you know, uh, all of Liverpool fans back in Luis Suarez when he was clearly found by the Evera inquiry to uh, be a bit of a racist. Um, but yeah, I mean, everything you've just spoken about, if I remember, I imagine putting this in front of certain people that I know on Twitter, for example, and then thinking, oh, you know, what a bunch of softs you all are. Um, I mean, are we all that's wrong with football? Like, we're just armchair fans at this, at this point, maybe passing comment on a reality we don't experience. I mean, do you think that's a fair cop? Maybe not like I sit down to discuss why I think that, you know, why these people want to listen to these people who might think that this behavior is okay and to discuss it with them and go into detail. Now, maybe they don't exactly want to have such, you know, enlightened arguments or discussions about these sort of things either. And they're right and I'm wrong. And that's that. Maybe. <laughs> like, you know, but it's, but what I'm trying to get at is that siloization of society. So it is kind of difficult for us to maybe mm. empathize with these other people. But at the end of the day, I guess I have my own moral compass. You guys do too. And they seem to be largely aligned on this particular aspect of things. And yeah, I think it's up. Yeah, I know what you mean. I think that like even though we're not match going fans, and I think sometimes he who shouts the loudest gets a lot of the airtime. But like our views are valid, I think too, because it provides a different perspective. Like if you remove this kind of assumption that it has to be a right and wrong, and this kind of dumb heuristic that you can't hold two ideas simultaneously, I think you can have a view as a match going fan, but that's also very subjective. So you can temper it with something like know a more distance and analytical view such as one that we provide for this and maybe for fpl as well and both do go together and it doesn't have to be a case of right and wrong and that sort of reductivism there maybe it's just me but i'm glad that you guys look like you're nodding along yeah but when it comes to like armchair fans as a general thing you know some people would just criticize anybody who comments on anything it's like oh you were never a professional footballer you don't understand or you're not a match going fan you don't understand like the fact of the matter is that a good solid 90 something percent of life and discussion is passing comment on the reality that you don't experience be that the house of commons be that love island be that who kyle walker is visiting or had visiting his home (laughs) 
and so it's like that argument is null and void as far as i'm concerned yeah no i, I can get that i can get behind that as well um it's just uh, trying to play devil's advocate to some extent just to kind of address what may be going through um people's minds or at least like if we did kind of fueled that discussion on social media how it would turn out i guess and um, be yeah, no, interesting Right, uh, so that debate over, and we see Jack Ross in the training ground explaining how making choices is tough, and sometimes you disappoint players. Uh, we finally hear from Jack Baldwin at his home. It's our second visit there, actually. We went there at the very start of episode two, and he's saying he's been left out. The house is to let. Oh, yeah, so it looks like he might not, he might not be there for much longer. Uh, good spot. Mm-hmm. I, it was, yeah, I was really interested to see that. I was like, when I first saw that to let sign, I was like, oh, where's this going? Is he leaving the club after this bad performance? No, 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 not this Maybe time. Maybe he's uh, upgrading. <laughs> Or downgrade, downgrading to a to a bungalow, <laughs> but yeah. I mean, either way, he says the Coventry game wasn't good enough. I got left out for the good of the football club. I have to accept that because if I went in and made a mistake and we messed up or whatever, then I wouldn't be able to live with myself. And yeah, it doesn't sound very good. We'll get to him in a minute. Um, but we also see our Disney prince, Luca Nine, getting a haircut. He's late. He lays it out. They can still get the top two, but it's broadly out of their hands, really. Um, it cuts Charlie in the car and he's saying he's hoping that this be the moment that um, things change. I'm going to match his thinking. I hope that today is the day when we turn a corner and start playing well again. It's a huge game. Uh, Jack Baldwin's wife segues us in nicely uh, talking about how he's reacted to being left out. Um, there's the scene in the players' lounge before. And uh, yeah, she says he's very low. They do say, don't they, there's a lot of depression in football. It weighs heavily on your mental health. I do genuinely believe that. And before Jack played football, I never would have understood it, that actually people do suffer really bad. Similar to Tom Flanagan, it's, it's not very nice to see. And it, I guess it's part and parcel of being a footballer. But no, she has she has raised a D word there, which is a little bit different. Uh, normally, you just like, oh, he's down, you know, he's, he's, he's mentally not in a good place. But actually saying, you know, he's a bit depressed. That's, that's quite almost worrying, isn't it? I mean, is there a place for this in that kind of in the, in this sort of macho world of football, or is it kind of a new age snowflakey thing to be even pulling up here and talking about it? It's, it's certainly not a new agey snowflakey thing, at least in in my opinion. I think it's a, it's a very serious matter and something that we obviously needs more um, attention and, and started to get some more attention that he actually deserves. I mean, many players have sort of spoken out um, in recent years about depression. Obviously, we had the end of story with um, Gary Speed um, as well, um, you know, losing his life to depression and his battle with depression. No one obviously knew, no one really knew that that was um, the case with him. So it's something that does um, need attention and is concerning. We also saw it with um, Johnny Williams, who made made a cameo in um, this episode last season, uh, talking about some of his mental health issues. So I think, you know, at the end of the day, it's, you know, footballers, again, it links very nicely with our topic of discussion just a minute ago where we were talking about the abuse that players get online and how that can have an impact on your mental health. And, you know, you do need to, it, it does need to be taken into consideration and hopefully, you know, you know, mental health is starting to get the attention it deserves when previously it probably didn't and was something that was considered, oh, you know, you're a man, you're a footballer, you know, we, we don't deal with our emotions, we, we take everything on the chin, you know, in, in modern day society, that's not really the case, is it? And, um, you know, it's, it's something that's very important. Absolutely. And it's even something that is in the news and maybe we should keep in mind. It's, of course, a lot of people are going to be suffering symptoms of ment- with mental health issues, whatever they may be during this COVID crisis and the, the issues that go with being locked in and suffering with financial uncertainty and jobs, status, etc. But actually, FIFPRO found that 
foot, the number of footballers being showing depression symptoms have doubled during this shutdown. So 13% of male players that they uh, of the 1,134 male players that they surveyed were reporting symptoms consistent with a diagnosis of depression, which is quite stark, actually. And uh, the Telegraph are even reporting that England players are among the footballers who are using mental health services during the coronavirus crisis. So like this, with the story that's being told, told here, and I think actually it was the Baldwins that were used to tell the story of the financial insecurity that players suffer earlier in the season. And again, the Baldwins are being used quite well here to show us the other side and the more difficult side of football and often the side that we forget because you think, oh, he's just out in the grass every day. What a great life he must be living. But the truth is that it's not that easy being in the limelight, dealing with it. You're living on a knife edge based on your performances for 90 minutes every few weekends or in the case of Baldwin now, based on the performances of other people because he's going to get dropped. Yeah, certainly. I think just overall, they're very, very good, as you say, like kind of a, a device to to give that some sort of body within the show. And it's very good to see kind of broadly that kind of, uh, as Nick was talking about, more broad tropes of intergenerational levelling up when it comes to this sort of thing. I think that there was this kind of horrible phrase which I dislike, man up, which was, which was used a lot in kind of the old generation, whereas now I think kind of talking about these things and them being out on the table and something that you don't kind of bottle up inside is definitely a very, very good thing. And especially, you know, as you mentioned with the current context, it's definitely something which uh, you know people need to be talking about more and more. Anyway, uh, anything else? Right. Okay, um, but I mean, in this game, uh, just to move on, uh, our other man, Tom Flanagan, does give us a cathartic moment as he scores the goal uh, against, Port- uh, against Portsmouth, actually, the bane of Sunderland in this entire kind of series. Uh, and there's a proper kind of centre-back's header from a corner. And there's a very nice kind of overlay from him uh, telling us, uh, yeah, it's a precious season. The people that you meet in Tesco, the people that you meet in town, that's the pressure. They spend all their money that they've got to come and watch you play that that's pressure but unfortunately the pressure tells in Sunderland it's another draw it's another 1-1 and we go straight into another game god there's so many uh, the fans who have journeyed to Fleetwood uh, pick up on the theme I had no faith in the middle <laughs> too many draws oh the draws and they they lose ultimately here actually and the angry fans uh, wearsiders who are swearing uh, uh, leaving the game, uh, underline uh, dissatisfaction here uh, with the with the team and how it's going. I mean, maybe we're still seeing the after effects of Madger leaving, um, but I mean, they ended up with an astonishing nineteen draws that season, the most of any club. What do we think about this? At the end of the day, it's by nature of drawing, you're one goal off winning a game, and if you've got a very good striker there, the likes of a Josh Madger who was clearly just quality above a League One, then. Yeah, you're going to get there. And of course, that was the massive gamble that Stuart Donald made getting in with Greg for a league record as it was at the time. But I, I would definitely put it into the effects of Magic. But at the other side of things, it might be a lack of invention or dynamism on the part of Jack Ross as well. And that's something that I think the ownership definitely feel. And maybe that's them trying to exonerate themselves for the the Greg deal and it may be not paying off to the extent that they would have wished for but 19 draws is that's excessive especially when you've only lost five which is less than any other club in the division 
Yeah, so there's an emphasis on not losing rather than winning uh, from the school of David Moyes, it seems, Jack Ross. Um, I mean, uh, you just mentioned it. Like, do we come back to that failure of uh, Grigg to step up? I mean, as we mentioned on that episode as well, no other option was signed because they just went headlong for Will Grigg when they meant to get two strikers. Uh, Wyke only managed six goals. I mean, there are loads of issues. There are loads of kind of uh, instances of game winners being really important. Uh, I did have a look at Madger and actually um, they drew more after he left than before he left. Um, they had nine draws after the match left in January. There were 10 before. He was an important player, but not actually a match winner. He only scored two match-winning goals, once against Bristol Rovers in December and once against Blackpool in January. So I think maybe there was an element that you know, the creativity in the team was what the issue was rather than Madger leaving. Um, nonetheless, it's definitely true that having a player who's able to put those chances away is still really, really important. A good example is Danny Ings this season for Southampton. Um, his... Uh, interventions are slated to have won them at least 18 more points than they otherwise would have had uh, so yeah a, a player like that is very very important and Madger leaving I think still hasn't had an effect in terms of Greg not being able to do um, not being able to replace yeah definitely I feel like with um, with Madger leaving it, it, it kind of fell onto Aidan McGeady's shoulders a little bit to be that match winner to be that talismanic player within the team and and you did see from his performances that he he did add an extra um, spark to the team especially I think you noticed it a couple of the games where he couldn't play because he um, had an injury or was getting injections with painkillers then he came off the bench and they, they went one one nil up in the when the playoff matches um, later on in the episode um, yeah so I, I definitely feel like you know you need that sort of talismanic figure if you're going to succeed and and in some of those games that we, we watched some of these draws clearly there wasn't a player that was stepping up in, in Madger's absence even though you know there were a few players in the team that kind of showed elements of um, you know key key players I think McGeady perhaps in the Carabao Cup run as well was critical to a couple of those victories and um, not Carabao sorry check a trade trophy run in that checker trade trophy final, it was definitely something that was focused on at the time was Jack Ross's negativity in terms of A, trying to hold on to his lead. But first of all, actually, the way that he had set out the team in the first place in terms of stacking the midfield with more defensive talent because they lost against that opposition, which was Portsmouth again. Yeah, yeah, because they they'd start they'd already lost to Portsmouth earlier in the season, and so they were just stacking the midfield in a bid to try and negate their attack rather than, as they say, just trying to win. And in that in that game, they'd even had a good start and didn't build on it. And I think that seems to have been a story that played out throughout Sunderland's season. And at that rate, you do wonder if it's especially given that they did bring in a new striker and they weren't seemingly weren't able to get him into the game, whether or not he should have, was taking his chances. It, it, there is a question yeah. over the management. Yeah, definitely. I feel feel like this episode is really the first time as as well that you really see the fans turn on Jack Ross um, over the course of the series. You haven't really seen it from the fans abusing him, but after the the two one defeat against um, Fleetwood, I think um, you do see um, the fans sort of you know hurling abuse at the camera, um, filming the documentary, you know, you know, swearing about Jack Ross and how he has to go and some other expletives, and um, yeah. Um, you know the, the whole defensive mindset um, that we see over the course of the series does uh, deserve some criticism at least you, we'll discuss it properly a little bit later on but I think an awful lot of that comes down to the fact that 
the fans have had their expectations built by the fact that they've had four odd million pounds spent on a striker. Results haven't turned around. They've pretty much continued as they were and they've just slowly slipped further down the table so that, you know, that the fact of the matter is, is that they weren't in with a chance of getting into the automatic promotion places with the final game week of the season. They needed to win their three final games to even have a hope and they weren't able to do that, obviously, with the Fleetwood game and the draw previous to that. Yeah, they weren't very good. And also, I don't know if any of of you guys spotted, but during that Portsmouth game, uh, when Tom Vernigan's giving his voiceover, you actually see Will Grigg on the bench. So he's not even on the pitch, uh, which is quite interesting as well. Um, I do think that there's definitely an element of uh, he's playing white and he's not... I mean, Aidan McGeady to Jack Ross, in Jack Ross' defence, does seem like he's been carrying injury for an awfully long time. Um, But yeah, it's just for whatever reason like their, their results really fell off a cliff towards the end of the season and I mean really fell off a cliff it just wasn't very good and for whatever reason they just they just couldn't get going they had a nice little run kind of um the end of February the start of March but they they won a succession of games and they just started drawing and losing and drawing and uh, for whatever reason Jack Ross doesn't seem to be able to turn it around they seem to have fallen but, but- at the final hurdle and it is something we would often discuss with Premier League teams when they're playing in Europe, especially on Thursday nights in the Europa League. It be kind of becomes a bit of an obsession for us after a while. But as it was, because they made it to the playoff final, they played 61 games that season. Like that is a huge amount of games. And like we've seen plenty of very good Premier League teams lose their legs around April because mm-hmm. of the fact that they've played too many games. Not to mind a squad like Sunderland that was completely stripped and rebuilt at the start of the year and so probably didn't have the depth that maybe it could have had. They wanted more strikers for a start, but it, it seems like throughout the team, it's the same players featuring week in, week out, apart from the little bit of rotation for the likes of the Luco Nines of this world. Oh, yeah. I mean, having that checker trade trophy run was not without its risks and the risk of fatigue which we often speak about you know the likes of you know, wolves and things like that in the europa league in the past um have definitely um definitely kind of uh, been seen um i guess with the impacts on sunderland um and you know it it does mean um because of this outcome it's the lowest position the club's ever finished and tony davidson a td to nick uh, says that he's hoping the fans are going to stay patient and not turn what I don't want to see is the fans turn. We don't want Stuart to not be able to walk down the street because he gets grief from fans, or me for that matter. And we see a scene as well in Sunderland uh, with Charlie, uh, which is quite interesting. So he's deciding the comm strategy uh, with Oscar Chamberlain, who's head of media. And uh, he seems to have a little bit of self-doubt uh, for the first time, I think, this whole series. I just feel for the first time, like, whatever I'm doing, it's not hasn't quite worked. Well, that's quite interesting. They decide, like, you know, to go for a call, uh, this call to action theme uh, on the comms. But why? Why do you think they include this uh, little moment where it seems like Charlie's lost a little bit of the poise that he seems to have had throughout the campaign? It's just a kind of realistic interpretation of what's going on with Charlie. Um, you know, the pressure perhaps has, has finally got to him. He's been relatively positive. It's all been about ticket sales, but you know, this time round, they're they're not able to to flog the tickets in the same manner that they have, and they they seem to be starting to to lose the support. And it's it's the most critical juncture of the season, so it's almost a bit of a surprise to see that the ticket sales are are so down compared to to where they would be, and perhaps that's indicative of the the poor form in in their most recent home games and. Uh, Perhaps, you know, you see it on Football Manager where the morale's abysmal or very low from your players after a couple of defeats and maybe Charlie's feeling a little bit of the effects of that morale as well. There are two aspects to that, I guess. And uh, it's uh, Andrew Camus 
points out the fact that for season ticket holders, they actually have to pay to attend that playoff semi-final leg at the Stadium of Light. That's part of the league rules. And so no matter what, a lot of them will be saving money to go down to London, to get the train, to stay overnight, to go to that match. And so some people are just reticent to go to this playoff semi-final based on that. Then there is the other side of it with the fact that, look, form abysmal, morale abysmal. And someone like... Uh, Charlie Methvin recognises maybe that the tide is turning against him and the management of the club and maybe it's also a sign that he's actually managing to find his people within the club that they've gutted all the naysayers and the people that were he wasn't able to work with and now he actually has somebody that he trusts that he can discuss with and maybe that's actually a sign of an achievement on his part that we're just kind of seeing in a different light because earlier in the year we saw him asking an awful lot of questions and getting basically no answers. Yeah, I mean, I think what's really interesting is that this emphasises the difference between business and football, because like football fans aren't workers. They won't always go no matter what. Like, a worker will always show up to work no matter what kind of bad morale or bad form has been going on in the team. But football fans aren't the same. They're, they're able to exercise a semblance of choice about that. And you can't motivate fans with the stick, which is his go-to. Uh, like we saw internally that he was talking about redundancy is continuing if bad form was to continue uh, in terms of the revenues. The cost cutting will accelerate and more people lose their jobs. And it feels like he's kind of running out of tools almost, almost as positivity siphons off. I mean, that's what I, I kind of took from it. That it was just he was struggling to continue to apply like his methodologies now that positive sheen had gone and all that kind of stuff about, as you mentioned, them having to pay to go to this game on top of what they'd already paid for. It just it just felt like, you know, he was really struggling and scrabbling around for something to do, some sort of magic way to sort things out. But it really felt, yeah, it, it did really feel like the end of an empire to some extent. I don't know why. It just, just kind of got that feel. Shoot, shoot me down if you think I'm wrong on this, though. So this is like, this is really the third time that we've seen him trying to sell something. At the start, he was trying to sell the vision of the club to within the, within the club, basically, and maybe to fans through podcasts, etc. We didn't really see any pushback from fans of anything. We saw them buying into very kind of cliched, just basic steps that the management yep. took that were being bought into. Grand, and then the staff, they were against him. And sure, he had to use the stick, but also he showed plenty of being able to use carrot to attract fans on for that Boxing Day, December 26th, Stephen's Day game, whatever you want to call it. Uh, he certainly nailed that, like completely nailed that and definitely worked the staff in terms of getting people in the door and stuff. Now, you might say that the people that he was trying to attract that day were money spenders. They're the types of people that he would know from London, let's say. He was talking about the expats, as he called them, that lived down south that were coming up north for Christmas. Uh, maybe he just doesn't understand the types of people that he's trying to get to fork out now. The season ticket holders who live in Sunderland every day, the people who just, you know, just love football. Maybe these are the most foreign people of all to Charlie Methven. Yeah, maybe. I mean, he does. He does kind of talk about how in the in the last episode, especially, he talked about how we kind of got the sympathy for the North. I think he kind of had that, maybe a couple of episodes before as well, he said that, you know, Sunderland fans had come full circle and started to kind of think, oh, you know, we do actually have some shared values. Some of the Sunderland fans who I've got to know a bit better have said the Southerners, Stuart and I seem quite down to earth. Um, but yeah, it comes back to what I was saying about for whatever reason, it just seems like it's not working now. Um, yeah, that's interesting too. 
yeah, it does does feel like the, the approach they're going for here is 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 to stick with the fans. It's almost like you know we we're in war now. You've got to do your duty. You know you must come to the game and support the team because that's your that's your civic duty is to, to come to the ground. That's almost the approach they're going for. And yeah, it does it does feel like he's, he's lost his is a little bit of his urge rather vive in terms of trying to inspire the fans to come along to the game and that might be off the back of some of the, the recent performances as I suggested. Oh, yeah, exactly. I mean, speaking of losing the Gerard de Rive, uh, we swapped to Stuart in Oxford and his partner Laura is saying it's very difficult to deal with the social media trolling of him. Uh, we have this kind of contrived semi-argument with him and her. Um, you know, he's saying you know, standing with the fans is the best way to watch football. She says she, you know, he doesn't have to own the club to enjoy that experience. Um, but he feels, you know, it's going to be okay to own. Uh, but he does portentously say uh, about next year that it's not going to be very good if it don't go up. If we don't go up, if you think this year has been, you've seen me stressed, then wait, wait for next year. It just feels like telegraphing at this point, doesn't it? I mean, it's almost like they've given up trying to kind of keep you on terms of hurts. You know what's going to happen. Um, but an important point here, I suppose, is that we spoke about mental health for the players and ha- when you can um, criticise. We've been about a bit scathing about Stuart throughout this series. Um, from the beginning, we're, we're kind of, oh, he's, he's quite a genuine guy. But kind of as events kind of transpired, especially with the Grigg incident, we kind of did criticise a little bit. Where's the line with him, do we think? I mean, is it different uh, to the players in terms of critique and that professional versus personal thing I was talking about? Because, I mean, with with the guy kind of owning the club and putting kind of himself and his pride on the line, like, it's very difficult to not kind of trespass into the personal, isn't it, when you're criticising him or at least kind of talking negatively about his decisions? I guess at the end of the day, the nature of his job is that you are talking about his judgment as a human being. You're talking about how he decides to spend his money, what his personal and maybe you could say like economic priorities are, which means you inherently end up commenting on the person more rather than, let's say, the player more. Like you you could be talking about Shaka and Mustafi, but you're never going to be talking about his views on anything, usually anyway. You're just talking about the fact that he missed a header, could have been in a better position, played someone onside, whatever it might be. So at the end of the day, you are obviously going to be dealing with the personal more closely very quickly but at the end of the day what's allowed what's okay and what's not is no different in my eyes you know the lines still exist in the same way yeah exactly you're you're, you're treading you're treading a fine line obviously probably some of the abuse um that he saw on twitter or his wife saw on twitter would have been over that line no doubt and we would again probably <laughs> say it's probably very highly offensive and unnecessary and um you know just has no place in in the world but you know obviously when we on the same point we when we're talking about him on this podcast and some of the decisions um he made he he's opened himself up to criticism in that regard because obviously he's made um you know a number of financial decisions um over the course of his tenure at Sunderland some of them sensible some of them not so sensible such as the Will Grigg one which we've been highly um critical of on that podcast because we we felt it was obviously a waste of money and they spent too much money and that was his business decision that was his personal decision and uh you know he's opened himself up to those criticisms but um yeah I think you, you do have to I think 
you do have some, I guess, a little bit of sympathy for him in this scene. I did, I did feel sorry for him, and I felt sorry for obviously, you know, no one wants to read horrible things being read about himself. You know, he's obviously got honourable intentions, hasn't he? Um, so when it comes to trying to run the club, and you, and I did notice that again when he, when he went to the away match and he was kind of with the crowds and everything um, in the playoff semi-final. You did feel like you know, he does have the club's best interests at heart, doesn't he? And uh, he's made some mistakes, but you don't want to see too many criticisms. No, he does seem a genuine chap. Um, he, he, he just doesn't seem to realise his limitations, or at least the, the way in which he's been portrayed. But you know, as I think Nick's uh, summed up very nicely that you don't obviously don't want to see it. that sort of horrible stuff written about him, do you? Um, but I mean, despite everything, I do kind of have that pang of sympathy. It's just um, quite. It's just, it's not the best, is it? It really isn't the best. Anyway, um, ahead of the last home game, uh, we see Charlie thanking the ticket office staff, and we see the beginning of the playoff semis. Um, the playoffs will be kind of the duration of the, of the show, uh, the rest of the show, and the semis uh, are versus Nemesis Portsmouth. There's some talking heads about the importance of the game from our mates Andrew Camus and Joyce the Cook into the game. Sunderland without McGeady, uh, edge of the tight encounter one nil. Straight into the return, it's nil nil. Stuart gives a vox pop after the game and his passion and authenticity really come through. You know, that's what being a football fan's about. You know, we're surrounded by them all. We're all in the same boat. Everyone's watching their watch for about 20 minutes. Time doesn't go very quick. But we got there. Um, we learn that it's Charlton who they'll play and Nick Barnes is saying they won't win. They show Mickey Gray missing a penalty in 1988. Then we see the build-up uh, to the game itself, uh, charting the journey of a couple of fans on the train, you know, and the fans take over Trafalgar Square again. They, they were in Covent Garden last episode, but you know, same thing. And they're talk, taking it up to the game itself. Not going to narrate over the whole scene here, except to say that, uh, as expected, Sunderland lose 2-1 with a Charlton goal in the final minute of the game. A moment of painful gravity as uh, Sunderland's consignment to the third tier from another season is realised. We see the impact on the fans, all manner of them. Andrew's kid in tears and Ian and Michelle gutted. Jack says they didn't deserve to lose so harshly. We have to dust ourselves down over the coming weeks, but right now there's a rawness of emotion that is um, very sore. And Laura gives a crestfallen Stuart a huge hug. Charlie half-heartedly clinks a toast next season. As Stuart Lees, a fan asks, are we ever going to be good, mate? It's the eighth time in a row since the FA Cup win in 1973 they've lost at Wembley. It's really quite a dramatic turn of events because they ended up with nothing when they could have had it all at the risk of something like Adele. Were they just unlucky? You know, the fine margins of football are really exposed here, aren't they? I think with regards to the two of them, I think, yeah, for sure there's the fine margins of football shown because at the end of the day if they had been promoted 90% of their sins would have been forgiven but in the context of how the series presents it I, I think I think that realistically you've got to say that Charity's pretty much nailed his role whereas Stuart Donald of course the questions come up and we've been through quite a lot of them even on this episode with Greg with Maja with just in general his philosophy and whether he should have followed it or not and that's the difficulty when it comes to trying to look back on these things that no matter what, we're going to just look back on, did they get promoted? Because financially they're screwed when they don't get promoted, no matter what they couldn't plan financially because of that all season long, because they find performance wise on the pitch, they just weren't good enough for them to know, okay, we're running away with it or, or even just the other side of it. Okay. We're just not good enough. We're going to be stuck down here for another year. Yeah, exactly. And the, the guys say that much um, themselves. So we go back to Sunderland for the final scene. You see Charlie reflecting on the positive financial transformation. In the space of 12 months, the club has gone from losing £20 million a year to break even. This club 
cannot be in the third division of English football for three years. And Stuart, uh, who says football side could have been better and reiterates he wants to stay on as long as the fans want him. I won't outstay my welcome. The fans will tell me and I'll stay as long as they want me to. And you know, as Stag said, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's really interesting to think about the two of them and obviously think a bit more in, in terms of having the, the fans' view when Alex comes on next week. But I mean, it is worth, it is worth kind of talking about kind of how they both see things because it seems like Charlie's, um, uh, you know, claiming success uh, got them down to break even, uh, whereas uh, Stuart, it just looks like he's kind of to some extent admitting that it's not really worked out how they wanted to. And yes, if they got promoted, uh, whatever happened uh, would have been forgiven. But it really is a case of kind of off the pitch success or kind of back off the success to some extent happening whilst on the pitch they fell short. How do we feel about them both as the series draws to a close? They failed ultimately in, in their job. What they set out to deliver at the beginning of the season was to achieve promotion for the club. But how much of that is their responsibility and how much of that responsibility falls into management? And, and Jack Ross um, is open to interpretation and debate um, as, as owners, you know, Stuart, obviously Charlie, in terms of what his responsibilities were in regards to cutting costs and uh, and you know raising ticket sales and the profile of the club and, and you know to reduce that deficit and end that, end that piss take party. In in some regards, Charlie has actually um, been very successful in what he set out to achieve at the beginning of the um, season. So that that is, as Tom said, that is what some sort of success of the backroom. But um, on the pitch and what Stuart was kind of you know trying to get for the club in terms of um, you know hiring the manager, they picked Jack Ross. That was their selection, so they have obviously some responsibility there in terms of who they even selected as the manager and the transfer policy as well, obviously in the January transfer window, what happened with Maggio and um, Will Grigg um, falls firmly on Stuart um, Donald's uh, shoulders and to blame Jack Ross, it kind of feels a bit uh, churlish based on what we saw on camera where he said he wasn't worth it and not worth the money. So in in that regard, Stuart um, does open himself up to criticism, as I said, and there has been some failure in that respect. So I think I'm going to largely echo what Nick said, so I'll be rather brief on this, but Charlie, I think, has pretty much nailed his stated objectives as they were put out and as the series portrays it. Like, Did he fill the stadium at Christmas and get in that big gate? Yeah. Did he annoy people along the way? Yeah, but he did clear out the staff and he got seemingly his people. There doesn't need to be anywhere near as much aggro on that side as the series paints it towards the end. He's not responsible for the football stuff, not his issue. Um but he seems to have had his heart in the right place. He seems to have, I think, actually kind of come to settle on the club as well and come to love the place for what it is. And he's not feuding within himself about the job. Stuart Donald seems to be the complete opposite. And he seems to have kind of realised that financially he just doesn't have the muscle to do this and that he's probably jumped into a pool he can't swim in. And he's not stuck to his principles on how a club should be run. He's got like, you know, left the blood rush to his head when it came to that Greg deal. And when he took the initiative there, he didn't mishandled transfer planning in general. And if he's going to now try to offload the blame for that Greg thing onto Jack Ross, I think what he's got to consider is whether, if he thinks that Jack Ross wasn't getting the best out of his £4 million signing, and it was March, and the the farm the form was starting to dip. I, at that point, does the responsibility lie with Stuart Donald for not taking extreme executive action yet again and actually just just getting rid of Jack Ross? Like, I know he'll say that was absolutely mental when he's got them that far through the season, but I feel when Stuart Donald has undermined him to the extent that he did, I think he's probably got to 
deal with the situation as it develops because of what he did. Yeah, certainly. I mean, I think we'll talk with Alex next week about who's to blame ultimately in more detail. Um, but just to say, obviously, I probably would echo both your points. And I think it's almost like the, the physical reality links with the perceptive reality as well. Like Charlie is in Sunderland. He's in Black Cat House. That's where he works when we watch him. Um, he's there when business happens. Sure, it isn't. He's, he's in his office in Oxfordshire. And I think the contrast is always clear there. I do think they gave it a good go. I don't think they came with sinister kind of in, uh, motives or anything. And I also think kind of it's, it's fairly sh- sympathetic in terms of how it shot to the two of them. And we spoke about it the last couple of weeks about how they've been kind of eaten up by the system and how Stuart especially found it, I think, very, very difficult to hold fast to those principles of it being the old fashioned way. But I mean, it really is that huge rig decision, as Nick mentioned, which damns them on so many levels, like not signing another option there, the signing of a striker who doesn't fit the system. And you know, it just really seems to me to be that's where the, the responsibility lies ultimately. It feels like the apprentice doesn't it, uh, who's responsible for the failing of this task. But I, I think that's really, um, yeah, uh, where I'll go with it for now. And then we'll see what Alex's views on next week. So I'm sure they'll be a bit more insightful. Um, but yeah, I mean, the final word of the season is given to the fans uh, who hope that Sunderland will see a great, big, beautiful tomorrow. Apart from my family, Sunderland's my next love. You know, and that's it. So, did we like this episode, guys? I think as a way of ending the series, I thought it, it brought all the threads together quite well. And I guess it, it did, harking back to what we've just discussed, it, it did get to the bottom of the fact that at the end of the day, it's the football that matters, be that to the fans, and that's what they love, and it's the club that they love, but also to the backroom team, that their success is so contingent on the football and so maybe that's the greater point to take from it but just look it's obviously a difficult end to a difficult season but it is a good episode and it relays it quite well yeah exactly i feel like the episode rounded the series off quite nicely uh, you know we, we experienced yet again the heartache for the sunderland fans that we had at the end of season one when they went down this time it was losing in the playoff final very much sort of fits the uh, the theme of the series which is uh, doom and gloom sadly but um, along with the sort of the, the theme tune music that kind of has this sort of you know sort of depressing vibe even though it's an amazing song um yeah so i thought it was a good end to the series and really good series of television as well and as i said before probably the best tv football documentary that i've watched yeah certainly i think the episode itself was very good um there was a, a lot of games that they had to get through a lot of seminal games i think they accomplished it very very well um and as stag said i think they definitely brought all the threads together and were able to kind of provide some sort of conclusion um, but I mean it does leave you kind of wondering what happened next and I, I kind of feel a bit sad about it being the last scheduled series there was an interview with a producer and they said never say never that they'll be back in the future um, but this series this season uh, was not kind of filmed uh, 2019-20 it wasn't filmed in the same way the other seasons were which is a, a bit sad um, I mean how do you guys feel about this being the last scheduled series? It's obviously disappointing to hear because, you know, we, we kind of want to follow the path and see what happens again and, and, and you know, how the club deals with, um, even like deals with coronavirus, for instance, would be very, very good television. I mean, I'm certainly interested to see what happened next. And I think that's a good point again to reiterate that next week we'll be joined by Alex McCain, um, who's the host of the Roker Report, to kind of just talk about 
the season as a whole. So I mean, we've given a little bit of our thoughts about Stuart and a little bit of our thoughts about Charlie, et cetera, et cetera. But I think it'd be good to talk about last season through the eyes of a fan and using that perspective to hopefully give a more rounded view of kind of what happened. Think about uh, earlier on this podcast, we spoke about what a fan brings to the occasion as well as kind of us as distance analysts and provide an epilogue. I mean, we're, we're looking to it as well now and there has been some news just kind of this week actually about Sunderland and what's going on um but have a look into where are they now and kind of what's happened since Sunderland um but yeah I think this this whole series has been quite a bit fun hasn't it guys I mean have you enjoyed doing the watch alongs it's been it's a little bit different from our usual fare and obviously we're hoping our usual fare does come back soon uh have to try to think about what the hell we do after this but yeah it's, it's been fun hasn't it it's been good fun it's uh, something different to what we've been previously known for but um you know i've found it fun to do cool yeah um good to branch out and, and try new things as well in terms of uh, podcasting so yeah definitely enjoyable yeah i think for me as well i binged the whole entire series before we had actually decided to ever do a watch along to it i had the whole entire thing watched and on a second viewing i think i maybe artistically enjoyed the series more i think the first time around i was just extremely story driven didn't really pick up on maybe the finer details and when you watch it again you definitely see what like there's there's some real actual like creativity going into the making of this it's not just merely a timeline of the season with you know cameras just sticking in and every play in every part of the club at every moment they've actually put this together really well they've it ties through nicely with the first season. There's themes running throughout it. It's just a really good series and a very good documentary. Like I would compare it to, let's say, the Leeds one, which I thought was extremely weak. And even the, the City one just, just screamed of a certain type of bias. Like the, the City one was interesting because it was City and the players that were in it. But, <laughs> but apart from in that City documentary where Fabian Delph is talking about, you know, it's football, it's just basic, isn't it? And Guardiola, like the CPU in his brain just fries. And he's like, no, 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 it's not, no, 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 no. no. It's not Timbal, and he kind of freaks out that you don't actually get a huge insight into what goes on at that club, especially on the management side of it, which of course would be extremely interesting to hear about given the uh, ongoing uh, financial fair play issues that that club is having. So, you know, really enjoyed it. Excellent. So yeah, um, just to wrap this up and say who we are, you know who we are, but we are who got the assist on Twitter at WGTA underscore FPL at WGTA underscore Nick and at FPL Stag and on Instagram at WGTA dot FPL. And of course, as we've said before, we will indeed be back next week to talk about what happened next and to talk about the series and what it was like to be involved in it. So we'll be joined by Alex, the host of the Roker Report podcast. So looking forward to that. But until then, stay safe and uh, stay alert as well as the new advice. Yeah. Talk to you soon. Exactly. Hope to see you watch Sunday's Slide Eye for the final time. Yeah, stay alert, people. See you soon. Oh, it's a goal. Who got the assist? Who got the assist? Social Podcast Network. Tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boost by tax day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial, LLC, member SIPC.